0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology, and we are reading through Herman Boving's book, The Christian Family. We're in chapters five and six.
1: And greetings, Chris Hellman, wherever you are. Yeah, he's listening today. This podcast is brought to you by no one still. We we just do this out of the goodness of our own hearts. We don't have any sponsors. We don't take any ad breaks. We don't read any ad copy. You're not going to hear a, but before we get to that, here's a word from our sponsor. None of that. (laughs) No, you don't have to like skip the first 15 minutes. None of that. In fact, if you're out there and you want to sponsor this podcast, you can't. Wow. But we, we, but you can send snacks. That's the only thing you yeah. do. That's the
0: only, only way th- you can sponsor it's us. the only
1: thing we do around. Here. You are drinking Olipop. I am drinking. <laughs> Although it's not a sponsor. <laughs> it's not a sponsor, uh, but it is a beverage that I'm enjoying right now. <laughs> hey, uh, we have been reading Herman Bovink works on Third Wednesday Theology for a couple of years now. And we're in this little book, The Christian Family. Uh, okay. The outline of the book is biblical theological. So he sort of starts at Genesis and he's working all the way through redemptive history to Revelation And chapter 5 is called The Family in the New Testament. And so what Herman Boving is going to do is walk through a lot of the New Testament's teaching about the family and how it is to work and what the Bible teaches about the family structure and family order and all of that. And so this chapter will be what many people are most familiar with, if you're a Christian, because we spend a lot of time reading the New Testament. So many of the verses that he quotes here and the ideas he talks about are familiar ones as we think about the family. But he opens the chapter by mentioning uh, the birth of Jesus and says, Hey, look, Jesus was born into a family. And I want to read the very first paragraph of chapter five to get us into the conversation today and to introduce you listeners to a topic that I think we need to think a little bit about as Protestant Christians. Here's how he begins this chapter. The new Testament opens with the story of the miraculous birth of Jesus from the Virgin Mary. This fact is unparalleled in history. Among the pagan nations, various stories exist about sons conceived by the gods with women, but the birth of a child from a virgin who was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit is entirely unique and without analogy. Mary occupies an entirely unique place in the history of the human race. She surpasses even the prophets and the apostles in esteem and honor. She alone was deigned to be the mother of the Son of God, She is blessed and favored among women and is called blessed by all the families of the earth. That's how he begins the chapter. And I just want to say this, you Protestant listener need a higher view of the Virgin Mary. Uh, One place where the historic church has always had a really deep adoration and regard is for the place of Mary. And Bavinck expresses that here. She surpasses even the prophets and the apostles in esteem and honor. And what's happened in many Protestant churches is because of our reaction to Catholicism and some of the weird ways they've elevated Mary, if you're unfamiliar with Catholic theology, uh, the Catholic church considers Mary to be a co-redemptrix with Christ. Like she is a Mm -hmm. co-redeemer. And so they've done some odd things with Mary in terms of exalting her to a place that rivals that of Jesus. And so Protestants have kind of overreacted and said, no, Mary, she's just a human person. And and,
2: the, and then let's not give
1: too much And let's attention. not talk about her. Let's just move on. <laughs> They're like scared. And I, I love when Bob Inc. says, hey, she's blessed and favored among women. She's called blessed by all the families of the earth. We need to have a high regard for Mary. In fact, the earliest church fathers going back to the Council of Nicaea Uh, and especially in the Eastern church that spoke Greek, they used the word for Mary, theotokos, which means God-bearer. And if you think about this sort of starkness of that, like we're saying this woman bore God in her womb, and that is a high and holy thing, and the church historically has had a great regard and honor for the role of Mary. And so I think that's something we need to recover as Protestant Christians
2: that's a really good rebuke to me. I was surprised to see him dedicate quite a few paragraphs and pages really just to Mary. And it was worshipful for me. It was it was taking me back to like the Christmas Advent season in a pretty holy way. Yes. Well, and I
1: think, you know, for for Christian women who wonder like who in the Bible can I look to as sort of a, a character example, a person to emulate and follow, that's always been in the history of the church. Mary is like the the woman in scripture who's like the new Eve, right? Whereas Eve disobeyed, Mary obeyed the Lord and humbled herself to what God wanted to do through her. And so she's sort of um, this counterpart to the ways that Eve represents sort of maybe the, the fall of womanhood. Um, Mary elevates womanhood at, at its ideal, at its best, at its, at its most honorable and obedient to the Lord. The next thing Bovink points out is that marriage is a provisional state. Uh, that it's, you know, in the resurrection, Jesus says people will no longer marry or be given in marriage. And so marriage is a preparatory state. It's a provisional state. And so for that reason, the New Testament, of course, does not, it honors marriage, but it doesn't mandate marriage. It says some people are called to be single. Some people are called to be married. And so it gives honor to both estates, whether you're married or single. And he also goes on to talk about uh, divorce, which is a question lots of people have. What does the Bible say about that? Um, Bavink writes, Moses did indeed permit a husband to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away, but that permission was due to the hardness of hearts and was not grounded in God's original ordinance. It was lawful, but not moral, permitted by the court, but not in the conscience. He goes on to write, Jesus permits divorce in one case. If a married woman was guilty of sexual immorality and thereby, in fact, broke the marriage, then the husband did not have to divorce his wife, but he may do so. And with a free conscience may release his unfaithful wife with the view of the marriage having in fact been been dissolved. Having been in fact dissolved. Gosh, got got a little confused on that phrase. With this, Jesus did not intend to supply a ground for divorce that was supposed to be legally valid and included in the law. Concerning that, he says nothing at all. But he supplies a moral law, that must bind the conscience of his disciples. In connection with that, he proceeds from the original institution of marriage. In terms of its nature and essence, marriage is the bond of one man and one woman becoming one flesh for their entire lives. I love that language. That's, you know, from 100 years ago. Bobbing's reminding us, one man, one woman, one flesh for life. That's God's design. And as he reasons about marriage and as he teaches us the New Testament's teaching on marriage, he's always going to say, there's a creation ordinance here. There's God's institution of marriage and creation. And then there's the way that sin has broken that. And then there's the way the gospel redeems that. So even what you hear him saying there in divorce is saying, yeah, if there's sexual unfaithfulness, there's grounds for divorce, but there's not an obligation to divorce. And the implication, we even as we talk about divorce, we say, see the gospel implication is like, as God's grace works on us, we want to actually move toward forgiveness and be willing to forgive another person and work to restore a marriage rather than just assuming automatically that it's over, even though there is grounds for that.
2: Right. I like the language of he may do so, yes. but he's not obligated to. Yeah. Um, now he goes
1: on to talk about mixed marriage, which is something we read about in first Corinthians. What if you're a, a believer married to an unbeliever? And he says, Hey, in that case, the Christian spouse ought to set the tone. Um, the spouse's home ought to be a Christian home where the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the believing wife and the children are holy as well. He's referencing first Corinthians seven there. And this is where I'm going to read this next paragraph or so, because this is where he, I think he really beautifully works out how grace restores nature. And this is a hallmark of Boving's thinking is he, he wants to start with nature. What did God design in creation? Then how does grace restore and rebuild and elevate uh, and redeem God's original design. Here's what he writes. A Christian family is a family in the Lord, a family in fellowship with Christ according to his example and command in the unity of his spirit. The confession of Christ does not destroy the natural order. The husband remains the husband, the wife remains the wife, and children remain children but the relationships of husband and wife and of parents and children, although corrupted and destroyed by sin are nevertheless restored and renewed by Christ. I think that's an important statement because he's saying, look, here, here's what you can, if you're a Christian listener, here's what you can plan on. If you are in a family, whether you're a child, a husband, a wife, uh, you're in a, there's a relationship. It's corrupted by sin. And it's restored and renewed by Christ. And so you can expect sort of this reality of like the fall is going to be expressed in that relationship, but also the goodness and grace of redemption is going to be expressed in that relationship. And we're all, we're all on this journey together uh, toward the redemption and wholeness provided by Christ.
2: When I read that, I thought about how much freedom and kind of win that puts in your sails to just know that the Lordship of Christ is over that entire thing. Even jumping back to when the Christian spouse ought to set the tone and then they give one more, he gives one more sentence that that spouse's home ought to be a Christian home where the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the believing wife and the children are holy as well that you read a moment ago. When I read those, I thought, wow, that's two very heavy sentences that is true and usually very, very difficult to, to live out, but it is very honorable to the Lord.
1: Yes. Now he's going to talk about headship and submission because these are New Testament categories, so he writes, the husband remains the head of the family. The wife remains submissive to him. Nevertheless, how wonderfully their mutual relationship is renewed and sanctified. In Christ, there is no man and woman. Both are heirs of the grace of life. Both share the same faith, the same baptism, the same Lord's Supper, the same Holy Spirit, the same aspect or the same access to the Father. Even though the natural distinction And the original relationship between husband and wife continue to exist. Everything nonetheless acquires a different character. I want to stop there. There's a semicolon in the text, but I want to stop there because what he's, I think this is the essence of when we talk about complementarianism, which is a word that gets thrown around in a lot of different ways. This is essentially what we're saying is there's natural differentiation between husband and wife. They are different, and yet under the gospel and in Christ, that differentness is a beautifying difference, and there's a there's a different character. Of course, those differences because of the fall are corrupted, right? And we see that in Genesis 3. But in the gospel, this difference remains, and yet there's a holy and a, and a rich character that's expressed here. It goes on to say the husband must love his wife, live for her and surrender himself to her even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there you go. That removes any sense of domineering or oppression or abuse or um, subjugation. He goes on to say, while the wife must be in submission to her husband in the Lord and as unto the Lord, similarly, children continue to be obligated to render obedience to their parents But both parties do not stand in opposition against each other, but they constitute a unified fellowship in the Lord. Likewise, the children are holy, ought to be at home in the domain of the church, and are heirs of the promise of the covenant. Parents must nurture their children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord, and children must love their parents and obey them in the Lord. With all their differences, husbands, wives, and children together constitute a chosen generation a holy, pre- a holy people, a royal priesthood. I think that expression of the beautiful difference and the beautiful character, I mean, even, even as he talks about parenting there, he's saying, look, parents need to lead their kids. You need, you're supposed to raise your children in the teaching of the Lord, and yet, and yet your child is an individual made in the image of God, and there is a back and forth mutuality. That child has their own will, their own heart, their own soul, their own intelligence and intellect, and there to be honored as a human being. And so there's this, this back and forth relationship between a child and a parent, even though there's also a difference of maturity. And so there's, a, there's a, a beautiful way that it's described there as he's working out how the New Testament restores the nature of the
0: family.
2: I like the way that he works out those differences between husband and wife there at the beginning that you were reading, because it reminds me of a good summary of Ephesians five twenty that says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So usually Christians will start with wives submit to your husbands, you know, and we're starting with that. Mm -hmm. And then we get all prickly right away, you know, like the blood pressure goes up. And this is a really good summary of a verse ahead of that submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right. Now remember grace restores nature. Let me read you
1: another couple sentences later on the chapter. Christianity did not overthrow the natural ordinances and institutions, but infused a new spirit in them, reforming them from within. It did not liberate wives from their husbands or children from their parents or workers from their vocations or subjects from the state. But Christianity made better wives and children, manservants and maidservants, workers and citizens and led them back to their respective relationships. Christianity provided spiritual liberation and precisely in that way recreated earthly relationships. One who was called as a servant remained a servant but became a free man of the Lord. And one who was called as a free man became a bondservant of Christ, 1 Corinthians 7.22. Precisely through this preaching of obedience and love, Christianity performed miracles. Now, what Bonvik is saying there has come under fire in recent decades because people feel like um, maybe there, there, there should be a more uh, revolutionary understanding of what the New Testament does. But what he's working out here is well-established in church history as that what, what the gospel brings is not an inversion of the established order of things, but mm-hmm. rather this sort of um, this like silent revolution where by transforming us into people who love as christ love it it sort of turns upside down the broken power structures of a society and that it's it's like this uh this this nuclear reaction that just sort of goes off and then and then brings this uh, effect beyond um and and so, especially as we think about slavery in the New Testament, this is a question a lot of people have. Is like, how come the New Testament doesn't just say, you know, slavery is wrong, slaves should seek their freedom? You'll notice almost every time the New Testament talks about slavery, it says, it implies that if a slave becomes a Christian, that changes how he sort of lives in the situation he's in, and if a master becomes a Christian, that changes how he lives in the situation he's in, and if a wife becomes a Christian or a husband becomes a Christian, it it changes the way they exist. And that that seems to be the dynamic of how gospel change happens, that it comes from the inside out. There are some people who don't like that because they feel like, well, it should be more revolutionary. Um, but that's actually
2: how the, the New Testament talks about the way the gospel brings change in our social relationships. We often talk about this in missional ways, but I love all this language of freedom and liberation because I think when you just think about your neighbors or a Christian family in a neighborhood, Marriage and family and kind of the grind does feel really hard for non-Christians. And I think they're intrigued with their Christian neighbor because there is this liberating freedom. But at the same time, they're not quite sure what to do with that. So I think all of this language here that Bavink is using has a missional outpost outpost to it as well. Yes. Um, He ends this
1: chapter by mentioning the way that Christianity found... um, life and favor especially among women in the first century he mentions all the women who are named in the new testament as significant in the early church he uh, mentions the fact that women in the new testament received apostles into their homes occasionally led in the gathering of believers though not to teach he says but certainly to pray and prophesy and were occasionally tasked with one or another project in the midst of the congregation from a later period, we know that the preaching of the gospel found entrance among women as well, and they themselves worked for the spread of the gospel, often surpassing the men in studying the scriptures and in the knowledge of the truth. And so he, he highlights the beautiful presence and leadership of women in the early church. And here's what I like about how he ends this chapter. Bavink is a traditional uh, Protestant Christian in the sense that he says women may not hold the office of elder. He says Christianity did exclude the woman from ecclesiastical office and did not elevate her to the rank of a priestess. So he acknowledges there's, there's limitations the New Testament places around offices in the church. But he goes on to say, but it did introduce a universal priesthood of believers in which the woman shared as well in no small measure. The significance that the woman acquired in the church affected her position in society. Whereas in the Roman world, she was gradually denigrated to the position of slave or an instrument of pleasure for the man. Now with Christianity, she again became a unique independent personality with her own mind and will. Christianity sanctified marriage, liberated it from various evils, and once again established it on the foundation of the divine commandment what I think Bavink is doing in a really beautiful way here is, is elevating the reality that like, if we read the new Testament, we see men and women leading together in every aspect of the mission. Um, And yet we do see a differentiation in the roles they play in the home and in the church. And so he's in a right way, I think, expressing that there is difference, but also, but avoiding the ways that that sometimes gets framed as, you know, lesser than greater than, or, Responsibility, lack of responsibility or leadership, lack of leadership. He's saying, listen, uh, the women in the New Testament in every way are described as leaders, pioneers, visionaries, advancers of the gospel, disciple makers, students of scripture, communicators, teachers. Um, there's There's a very high and holy vision of the role of a woman in the New Testament church while also holding some boundaries
2: around that. What I also love about that paragraph is what he's saying here, which I didn't even really notice at first, is he's saying, hey, the church is to thank for, in a sense, dignifying yes. woman. Yeah.
1: And most people who study the first two centuries would, would say exactly this. I mean, yeah. the, the way the church viewed women versus the way the Roman society viewed women is starkly different. Right, And in our day and age, uh, where there's sort of such an emphasis on uh, equality and egalitarianism, sometimes that gets muted. But it's absolutely the case that the way that the church dignified and honored women and their role in society actually transformed Roman society and and brought a ton of changes that would not have happened without the church, and without the progress
2: of the gospel. You mentioned the New Testament. We're reading Philippians right now. And Paul says in there, hey, and also help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Yep. Help them to work out their disagreements. (laughs) Yeah. Help them get along over there
1: um now what i think is interesting so so we said this this podcast is going to cover chapters five and six chapter five is new testament chapter six is titled dangers confronting the family and i think this is the like missional cultural apologetic chapter because he kind of concludes his teaching in the new testament and then here's how he opens um to chapter six christianity often gets blamed for not having been able across the span of 18 centuries to redeem society from all its evils, from poverty, greed, prostitution, etc. He's saying, Hey, if Christianity is so great, how come it hasn't been able to fix the world and make things better? Like, why is there still poverty and greed and prostitution? And, you know, if, and I hear this objection from people a lot, it's like, Hey, look, if Christianity is true, how come the world is still so messed up. And how come society still has all these evils and problems and struggles? And so that's a great way to start a chapter because you're basically saying, well, here's the question. Let's tackle it. Here's what he says. Such a complaint leads people to lose sight of the fact that the human person always remains the same and continues to be born with the same wicked heart. You're all evil. From that heart proceed evil thoughts, murder, adultery, etc. Matthew 15, 19. As soon as these evils spot an opportunity, they break forth and spread throughout all of society. In this dispensation, therefore, complete victory is never achieved and complete rest never obtained. From generation to generation and from century to century, the struggle against sin must be continued and the spiritual and moral nurture must begin afresh with each person. That's like a sober reminder for me. Yeah. It's just like, well, each generation is going to have to keep fighting for the progress of That's right. the gospel and of uh, the common good. Um, and so he mentions that one of the ways, so he wants to trace, okay, so across history, how is the what are the, the dangers that have applied to the family? And he traces a few of them. The first is what he calls asceticism or what history calls asceticism, which is this movement that basically said, um, you know, marriage is like a secondary state. It's better to be single and chaste and celibate, and that makes you holier. And this started very early in the church, and it also sort of, you know, with Gregory the Great in the uh, 600s, it was enshrined in the Roman Catholic Church, of course, in the celibacy of the priesthood, but, but it has a long history in the church. And the way he describes it, he quotes John Chrysostom, yeah, An early uh, Eastern church leader who said married life might be silver, but the unmarried state is golden. Oh. How about that? It's better. I mean, hey, you're on fine, the podium. You're on the podium. But you know? being unmarried is better. <laughs> and he says that ascetic movement gradually led to monasticism. You think you might think he's about to say some bad things about monasticism, no. but then he actually says monasticism was a rich blessing for the spread of Christianity for the
2: work of mercy and for preserving and advancing civilization. And we were recently at a monastery yeah. a couple weeks ago with our team. Yeah. And uh, a Benedictine monk came by and he wanted to talk to us, to our little table. I don't know. It was like four or five of us there or something. There were no women at our at our table. So he, he proceeded to talk to us. I don't know if there would have been women there. Maybe he would have talked to us too. I don't know. Because some of those guys avoid women, you know, hmm. depending on what... Yeah what kind of sect they're in. But he, he was talking about his mercy ministry in Germany. And I said, well, I think we have some stuff to learn from you over there. And he said, he like stepped back because I, I led with, we're Protestant. I was wearing a Quorum Deo t-shirt. <laughs> we talked Latin, you know, for a minute or about Latin. We didn't talk in Latin because I, I can't do that. Yeah. Anyway, it was a really fun exchange where I was just uh, doing here what Bovink is doing and saying like, oh, got some stuff to learn. That's nice. And what did he say? He was like, cool thanks for saying like, oh, that maybe, you do have some stuff to maybe learn maybe likewise you know he was basically being oh, very charitable very diplomatic
1: way. very diplomatic um Bavin goes on to write this one may fully acknowledge the gains achieved by monasticism without closing one's eye to the deeply immoral situations it caused okay so it's possible to say that was good and also it led to some bad we can say both and he says both and so one of the things, one of the bads, one of the evils it led to was this unmarried, this, this elevating of the unmarried state, and especially for priests, that, that um, led to the Reformation because it led to a lot of abuses, especially a lot of sexual sin and license within the priesthood, and a lot of uh, wickedness within the priesthood. Um, so that's one of the problems. One of the dangers confronting the family is asceticism and a devaluing of the married state. Here's a second danger confronting the family. Christian men often considered themselves to be elevated high above women. Often among the church fathers, the counsel was given not to eat, drink, and speak with women, but to flee from a woman's path as from the gaze of a serpent. Wow. The Billy Graham rule wasn't so far away from those early church fathers, was it? Men saw the woman to be primarily a temptress of the man, a snare unto sin, a gateway of the devil, as Tertullian called her. And with all these accusations, men forgot to seek the guilt in their own weaknesses. I want you to hear what he's doing there. That's Bovink saying, yep, all of that was wrong, and it was men failing to take account that
2: they were the problem. Stop blaming it on the right. women.
1: So, it's, And this really is a problem. It's been a problem in the church historically. It's a problem still today. And so we should we need to call that what it is. He says, despising the woman, however did not lead, as one could momentarily suppose, to abstinence, but to abuse. If marriage was denigrated, if the woman was viewed as inferior to the man, and if marital relations were thought to be impure, then all of this has but one result. Satisfaction of lust was sought outside of marriage, and the woman was abused as an instrument of pleasure. And so he's saying this didn't solve any problems. It leads to greater evil toward women. And if you or a listener who is concerned about that and wants the church to say that more clearly and more loudly. I hope you hear what Bobbing is doing here is he's, he's naming that and saying, Hey, that is not okay. Yep. And this doesn't, this leads to more and more evil. And so I want you to hear, here's a, here's a writer outside of our moment way before the sexual revolution, writing a hundred years ago saying, Hey, these are these evils need to be named as evil. This is not a, uh, this is a danger confronting the family um, then he goes on to say uh, okay so what so
2: <laughs> here's the question he asked us you know I think this basically, is basically from this point forward for the rest of the chapter you're just kind of like oh man yeah he kind of this is where it gets a little, because he, he
1: the question he's asking is okay look if sexual sin is a problem which it is how how do we Tackle that problem. Because he says that's what asceticism was trying to do. It was trying to say, like, you know, what if we just elevate the unmarried state and say that's more holy? Well, that doesn't work. Um, that's that's in a sense what some of the denigration of women was seeking to do was, you know, gosh, we want to avoid sexual sin. It must be that the woman is the temptress, and if we just stay away from her, maybe that will keep us pure. That's not the answer. So he's just tracing that all these aberrations in history are bad attempts to, to sort of like sort out the problems of our sexuality and the sin that sexuality can pull us into. And so he says, what are we going to do? Yeah. To resist the cancer of sexual sin that gnaws on the body of the human race. That's a line. <laughs> it's a serious <laughs> line. And by the way, one of the evils he addresses, I didn't mention it here because it's not as relevant in our day, in, in the same way that it was in his day, but he mentions a ton about prostitution because in the early nineteen hundreds, especially where he lives in the Netherlands, prostitution is huge. right? Now you might just say pornography and the sort of sex trade as sort of you know it's how it's more how that the shape that takes in our day and age is more sexual slavery in his day, he's addressing a lot the evils of prostitution, but it, he's basically saying in every day and age, the problems of sexual sin rise to the surface. How do we tackle them? And so then he he basically goes through a catalog of here's all the answers. Here's what some people say. First, there are some who expect help to come from regulating prostitution. They say, you know what? Prostitutions existed everywhere. Just give the prostitutes a license, make it legal, yeah. and let it happen. And there's still people today who, say, who have that answer. Mm-hmm. Alongside them, others come forward who want to place marriage under the regulation of the state. Basically, the state should regulate who can get married and who can't get married. And there should be medical tests and rules and, you know, basically just like let the state be in charge of marriage and regulate who gets married. That's a little scary, but that's a pretty heavy handed approach.
2: The interesting thing about that is in our grandparents age, you had to take a blood test to get married. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So there are interesting things here that have happened. None of this has really taken root.
1: Okay, the next answer is, though, answer one, regulate prostitution. Answer two, regulate marriage. Answer three, uh, condemn the legislation of the church in this matter. The the problem is the church has, you know, placed so much emphasis on marriage. Just liberate people, free love, free sex. It's basically the 1960s before it was a nice. Just like basically just let everybody be in love with each other. Don't worry about people getting married. Let them partner up and shack up and do whatever they want. And that's the way to solve the evils of the problem. He says, allow free love to prevail as it did at the beginning of the human race. Yeah. We tried that in the sixties. It didn't go so well. It sure didn't. Okay. Then he goes on to answer for feminism. He says, still others expect deliverance to arise from the emancipation of the woman. Um, all of this will change when the woman becomes completely independent of the man in and outside of marriage. Let every profession and job, every position and office be open to women. Remember, he's writing in 1912 when that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, Then women will show what they can do. Through their unique feminine virtues, they will provide a counterbalance to the coarseness and ambition of men. And in family, society, and state, they will demonstrate a reforming and salutary power. You see a lot of first wave feminism right there. All that's very prophetic. And then his final answer, answer five is communism. You know what? There are those who cast the blame for all sin and misery on the lousy organization of society and especially on capitalism. Poverty is the cause of every malady, prostitution and drunkenness, robbery and murder. If society were organized differently, then an end would come to all those miseries. So it's interesting that he's chronicling. I mean, if you think about what he's chronicling there, kind of in the 20th century, all of those answers were tried. I mean it's fascinating. He's writing yeah, yeah. at the he's writing at the height of first wave feminism. He's writing at the beginning of communism before World War One. He's writing when, you know, there are movements to regulate marriage yeah. and to regulate prostitution and to condemn the church. And he's he's saying, Yeah, um, the problem is none of these can solve the problem. He's saying, Let me tell you where this is headed. It's not gonna work. You're gonna have to wait till the next podcast to hear his answer. But basically he's just setting you up to say, guess what? None of these answers work. The answer that's going to work is Bob's answer in chapter seven, which we're not going to get to until next time. What he
2: does say is there's never been a time when the family faced so severe a crisis as the time in which we are now living. Yeah. Many are not satisfied with remodeling. They want to tear things down to the foundation. Yeah. Sounds a lot like today. <laughs> Sounds a lot
1: like 110 years later where we're sitting here around this table. Um, so, Bovink, uh, you know, he's building a case here and you have to remember this book is sort of cumulative. It's, and I realize we're taking this one podcast a month. And so then, you know, you're going to sit here for the next four weeks and wait for his answer. Um, and I realize that's a little frustrating because it's kind of like, it'd be nice to go from like, all right, if none of those things are the answer, what's the solution. But, um, you know, he, he's going to give us his solution in chapters seven, eight, and nine in, you know, some aspects of it you might like, and some of you might not. He's writing 110 years ago, and things are different then. You know, Bethany Bethany brought up, like, in this part, does he think women shouldn't vote? Because he, <laughs> he mentioned in that he feminism says, chapter, just let them vote. That'll solve the problem. And yeah. he's like, D- does he not think they should do that? I, think I guess just, we'll find I out.
0: I guess we're going to find
2: out. <laughs> I think he's just saying that's not going to solve the bigger issue.
1: Yeah. I, I want to remind you, if you're a listener, you know, in the Netherlands at this time, votes were by household. And there, and so there was this solidarity factor. And so he, he, he did actually not, he was not in favor of women's suffrage in the beginning of his life, not because he was opposed to women voting, but he, because he wanted to preserve this sort of solidarity of the household. After Bovink's death, his wife became a major campaigner for women's suffrage in the Netherlands. And so, um, most historians of his life, those who have studied him would say, and she understood that to be the natural outflow of what he's writing in this book that, that. You know, we want if society is going to move away from solidarity in the household and toward representative democracy, then, of course, men and women need to share equally in the vote. It's so it's it's more about where society was moving in the Netherlands and less about men versus women. But that's a whole separate conversation that maybe we'll get into (laughs) in some chapters to come
0: next time.
2: Next time you have to come back. That last chapter got me really fired up about like sex trafficking. Like all of his mentioning about prostitution, I, I was just bothered. Yeah. Because he's basically saying, look, this has been a problem. It's going to continue to be a problem. <laughs> so, and then he doesn't really like solve it or, you know, recommend a, a, a solution. So, it's just that evil is frustrating. Yes. So, that got me. That was one takeaway. Yeah. I got fired up by the end.
1: I'm intrigued as I continue to read Bavink about his his theory of grace restoring nature and all the ways he basically wants to sort of talk about how the gospel beautifies and restores and redeems and reshapes the natural state of things. Um, I'm just really fascinated by how he keeps coming back to that theme and showing that work in his treatment of the scriptures. Bethany, what stood out to you?
0: I think very similar to you, Bob. The grace restoring nature idea is just a beautiful picture um, that I think a lot of Christians, myself included, maybe have lost sight of, or just don't necessarily think of that happening now. I think I tend to read like these chapters and I'm like carrying all the angst of like cultural, the cultural moment and like. And I just worry, I'm like, is this going to say something that like, is this just going to divide more people? And so, um, I don't know. I think the picture that he paints is actually really beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a move in theology that I think is unique to this stream of theology and not every, not everybody thinks that way. And not, not a lot of American Christians haven't been taught to think that way. So we think more culture worry and more this versus that instead of this, this beautifying of grace, restoring and bringing to fullness What God hardwired into nature.
2: The other takeaway I have is that that freedom liberating reality of the Christian family has a very missional influence on people that I don't know that we're always aware of. Yeah. Well, listeners, you're going to have to come back next month so
1: we can see Blavik's answer to all the dangers confronting the Christian family and our existence in the world as men, women, and children so we'll see you next third wednesday theology
0: the goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission so if you're a christian or church leader in another context we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context we always love to hear from listeners so if you have thoughts questions or future podcast topics send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com Thanks for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.